Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, July 15th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. Chilling new 911 calls revealing the terrifying moments before a massive condo collapse in Surfside, Florida. The death toll from that tragedy now increasing. Disturbing new details emerging about the final days of the Trump presidency. Several new books revealing how far he was allegedly willing to go to hang on to power. Military officials concerned he might attempt a coup. And the government of Cuba apparently bending to the will of the protesters as it announces new reforms. Two weeks after the deadly collapse of a condo building in Miami, we're now learning that inspectors were calling for repairs to the garage and pool as far as uh, 1996. Today, we also have new audio, frantic 911 calls detailing what was going on inside that building on June 24th. Andrea Linares has the latest on the still unfolding tragedy. For the first time, we're hearing the terrified calls for help. Where's your emergency? Yes, I'm a Champlain Tower. Something's going on here. you got to get us out of here. The distressed calls made just moments after Surfside Condo's sudden collapse, just after 1 a.m. on June 24th. I woke up because I was hearing some noise. I looked out, outside and I saw the patio, patio area started sinking down. The building just went to the sinkhole. So there will be many, many people there. Multiple 911 calls coming from inside the part of the tower still standing. You're in your apartment right now? Yes, but half the building's gone. The calls growing more frequent and urgent by the minute. We think the roof collapsed in the building. A bunch of us are in the garage, but we cannot get out. Many who desperately attempted to escape through the garage just couldn't. Oh, we're going back up the stairwell. The garage is inundated with water. We don't know where the water is coming from. Residents confused and frantic. What's going on? Tell me exactly what happened. I don't know. There's a lot of smoke going on. I can't see anything right now. You see smoke? I'm going to get out of here. Meanwhile, first responders rushed to the scene. Half of the building collapsed. I was able to escape, but I'm outside in the parking lot. If the building comes down, it will come down on my head. One boy pulled from the rubble alive. There's people in the rubble yelling. After 14 days of searching, rescuers did not find more survivors. The operation turning to a recovery mission. The remains of Champlain Tower South is now nearly level to the ground as excavators remove piles of debris. According to Miami-Dade County, more than 22 million pounds of concrete and debris have been removed. So far, 97 victims have been found. Of those, 90 have been identified. The youngest, just one year old. Eight others remain potentially unaccounted for. A Miami-Dade judge on Wednesday approved the sale of the oceanfront property with proceeds intended to benefit the victims. According to court records, a sale could fetch anywhere between $100 million to $110 million. The judge would like this process to move quickly. Now, it's important to add that this decision does not necessarily preclude a buyer from turning at least a portion of the site into a memorial, as some people have advocated. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News.
Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And now to a disturbing story out of Washington. Several news outlets, including the New York Times, detailing how chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, the nation's most senior military commander, was prepared to stop a potential coup attempt by former President Trump in his final days in office. The allegations coming to light as several new books are out this week, highlighting the dangers faced by democracy in this country in the early days of January before President Biden was sworn in. We were robbed. We were Chilling new accounts of a president who in his final days in office caused concern among his top aides that he was unhinged, obsessive and dangerous. Three new books painting a portrait of Donald Trump desperate to cling to the presidency. In his book titled, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost, Wall Street Journal correspondent Michael Bender chronicles a sobering moment in the aftermath of Trump's defeat. Quote, the crazies have taken over, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo warning a colleague. He conveyed concerns to others that Trump might be more willing to engage in an international conflict to strengthen his political argument for remaining in office. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo becomes very concerned about the national security of the country, the domestic unrest and what that could mean internationally, privately. He sets up a call with a daily call with the chief of staff and Mark Milley, the nation's top general, in order to try to keep temperatures down. Publicly, what does he say? He says that there's going to be a smooth transition to a second Trump term. Representatives for Pompeo have not offered any comment on the reports. Another new book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year by Washington Post reporters Carol Leonig and Philip Rucker, describes Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani on election night, pushing Trump to forget that Fox News had called Arizona for Joe Biden. Quote, just go declare victory right now, Giuliani told Trump. You've got to go declare victory now. Giuliani's suggestion of a just-say-you-won strategy infuriated Trump's campaign advisors. You know, these two old guys pressed together trying to determine what's really going on in the world, and they don't get it. They, they don't get what's unfolding around them. Rudy Giuliani did not respond to a request for comment. Another book by controversial journalist Michael Wolff portrays a president isolated right after the election. Quote, by the Friday after Election Day, there was not a single White House aide or Trump campaign official or Trump pollster who believed that the vote count could be reasonably or effectively challenged. He is a man alone. His lawyers are saying, we're, we're, we're not going to we're not going to do this. We're not going to fight these cases. And Wolf writes that as the attack on the Capitol raged on January 6th, quote, the president seemed just not to be grasping the facts as they were coming through. These people were protesting the election, he was still repeating, as late as 2.30. The protesters wanted Pence to do the right thing. These were good protesters, his protesters. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. And according to several accounts, Milley was prepared to resign and then have other officers resign one by one in case President Trump tried to invoke the Insurrection Act to allow the military to take over Washington in an effort to remain in power. Milley allegedly telling close associates, quote, they may try, but they're not going to succeed. We're the guys with the guns.
And now to continued concerns over the Delta variant. Officials reporting it now accounts for about 60% of all new COVID-19 cases. About 47 states are seeing cases rise again after weeks of decline. The biggest worry right now, however, is how to protect children who can't get the vaccine. COVID-19 cases in the U.S. moving once again in the wrong direction. The seven-day average now up to more than 24,000. Cases more than doubling between July 3rd and July 13th. At least 47 states reporting a 10% rise in cases compared to the previous week. In New York City, cases more than doubling in just one week from 182 on July 6th to 429 on July 12th. In Los Angeles County, of 500 percent jump in cases over the past month. Health experts say every single patient hospitalized has not been fully vaccinated. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention forecasting there will likely be a rise in COVID-19 hospitalizations in the next month, between two to 11,000 new hospital admissions by August 9th. The ensemble forecast also predicting deaths could go up to 619,000 in the next three weeks. The director of the National National Institutes of Health says the data shows more than 99% of people in the hospital with COVID are unvaccinated. And the more contagious Delta variant now accounts for nearly 60% of new infections in the U.S. If you were on the fence about whether vaccination was going to help you, listen to those numbers. Unvaccinated people going into hospital and dying. Vaccinated people essentially not. The main concern right now are kids. Health officials in Utah, where there are no mandatory COVID protocols in place, saying they investigated outbreaks at 10 different summer camps in one week. Seven children in Mississippi are being treated in ICUs, including one younger than a year old, two of the children on ventilators. So transmission will continue to accelerate. And what we'll see, and the ones who will also pay the price other than the unvaccinated adolescents, are the little kids who, uh, who depend on the adults and adolescents to get vaccinated in order to slow or halt transmission. Chicago public schools are already offering the vaccine to teens in preparation for the new school year. I was skeptical about the um, vaccinations. I didn't want to be a lab rat. I think we have to trust the science at this point and move forward. In Tennessee, where COVID vaccine outreach for teens is no longer allowed, a former vaccine official claiming she got this muzzle in the mail days before getting fired as some sort of warning, adding officials are not listening to the science. The Biden administration, meanwhile, fighting back the politicization of the pandemic. Delta variant poses a threat to Americans of all ages. We continue to see young people hit by the virus as we've vaccinated so many of the, our elderly and most vulnerable. And we've been crystal clear that we stand against any effort that would politicize our country's pandemic response and recovery from COVID-19. The White House hosting pop star Olivia Rodrigo to promote vaccinations among teens. In awe of the work President Biden and Dr. Fauci have done and was happy to help lend my support to this important initiative. It's important to have conversations with friends and family members, encouraging all communities to get vaccinated and actually get to a vaccination site, which you can do more easily than ever before. The U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy is warning in a new advisory that health misinformation is, quote, a serious threat to public health as administration officials grow increasingly concerned about misleading claims about coronavirus vaccines. Murthy is scheduled to appear at today's White House press briefing to discuss the advisory. 
And we know the coronavirus pandemic changed the lives as we know it, but now studies are finding it caused millions of children around the world to miss routine vaccinations. Researchers analyzed immunization data from 1980 to 2019 to estimate how many routine vaccinations would have been expected if the pandemic never happened in 2020. And it found that at least 17 million children worldwide likely missed routine vaccinations during the pandemic. The disruptions in vaccinations impacted both high-income and low-income nations and were most severe in April of last year. And as we reported earlier this week, new data from the CDC shows that in the midst of the pandemic, a record number of people died from drug overdoses in 2020, according to the agency. There were more than 93,000 overdose deaths in 2020, the most since the CDC started tracking those statistics in 1999. The estimate eclipses the high, the high of about 72,000 deaths in 2019. Let's go to Dr. Nora Volkov. She's the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which is part of the nation, the National Institutes of Health. Thanks for being here, doctor. Thanks for having me. What's your reaction to that number? 93,000 overdose overdose deaths last year. Well, I think that I react in saying, I mean, this is telling us very clearly what that what we are doing is not working that the opioid epidemic has reached proportions that we no longer can ignore. And more than 93,000 people died in one year. And most of these people were young. And so the, the, the years lost of productive life are enormous and the tragedy to the families. So it's to me a call for action. We have strategies to address the opioid crisis. We need to pay attention to them and put the resources that are necessary for it, just like we're doing it for And doctor, what is driving this huge increase and how is the pandemic tied to it? There are three major factors that are driving them. One of them is the stress associated with the pandemic, the social isolation has led to increases in drug use and to relapse among those people that were in recovery, that's one. Second, structural characteristics of the way that we address the treatment of substance use disorders basically left uh, the, the, our capacity to take care of people um, depleted with the needs, the increased needs of healthcare providers to attend to COVID cases. And the stigma associated with uh, the disease also did not help because people are mistreated, feel that they've been mistreated by helpers, so they don't go there. And then there's a third component to it that is very important, which is that we have seen an accelerated expansion of access to increasingly more dangerous drugs. So fentanyl, for example, is 50 times more potent than heroin. And it is being used not just to contaminate heroin, but also to contaminate drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, or illicitly manufactured prescription opioids. Many times a person don't know that there's fentanyl in the drugs that they are purchasing, they have no tolerance. So the risk of overdosing is very high. And amidst all of this, of course, it has been much harder to give treatment to individuals that need it for their opioid use disorder and to deliver naloxone. Naloxone, when delivered on time, can save a life. Yes. Uh, but as people were isolated, they, no one was observing when they were overdosing and no one was being able to give them the medications. Which is very important. And doctor, is there any data yet on the racial breakdown of these numbers? 
Well, we have data from 2019, and it was very worrisome because yeah, already in 2019, we were observing that the group that had the, the greatest rise, acceleration in mortality from overdoses were Black Americans. And, and overall, at the beginning of the opioid epidemic, they have been spared. But now is the group where we see the greatest acceleration. And we're also seeing significant changes on the geographic distribution. So initially it was more rural areas. Now we see it everywhere. And similarly with fentanyl, which we initially had observed in the northeastern states, now is in the east and in the west and in the center. So we, uh, COVID, COVID unfortunately facilitated the transition into even increasingly more dangerous drugs that uh, became accessible to people that were using them unbeknownst of the consequences. And Dr. Volkov, you were mentioning that we have the tools to combat this. So what is the federal government doing to address overdose deaths? Well, we have the tools. We, we have medications that are very effective in helping people stop taking opioids, misusing them, and importantly, in protecting them from overdosing and dying. We have them, they work. But they are not being given to all of those that could benefit from them. And when they are be, being given to them, there are many roadblocks that make it harder for the patients to access it. So that's one. We can significantly expand access to medications for opioid use disorder to everyone that needs it and not have barriers of reimbursement or or, or needs to, to prove that you have actually a hit bottom in order to be prescribed a medication. We need to expand the numbers of providers that can give that treatment. We need to involve our pharmacies to participate in the process. And we also need to make um, naloxone, Narcan, much more widely available and without restrictions on the number of doses that can be delivered. Because what we are finding out is that with fentanyl, you require higher doses of naloxone to revert the overdose. And this is because the duration of the effects of fentanyl are significantly longer than those of naloxone. So you need to readminister several times. And if you don't, the person will get re-narcotized and stop breathing. Those are devastating numbers. Thank you so much for your insight and all this information, Dr. Nora, Nora Volkov of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Thanks for your And moving on to, to employment news, the number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits has reached its lowest level since the pandemic struck last year. Further evidence that the U.S. economy and job market are quickly rebounding from the recession caused by the crisis. Today's report from the Labor Department showed that jobless claims fell to 360,000. The U.S. recovery from the recession is proceeding so quickly that many forecasters have predicted that the economy will expand this year by roughly 7%. That would be the most robust calendar year growth since 1980. And today is a good day to check your bank account, and that's because millions of families with children will see more money today as part of the newly expanded child tax credit, part of the American Rescue Plan signed by President Biden in March. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin? 
Lorraine, the IRS had already sent letters with instructions to more than 35 million families across the country that qualify for the increased child tax credit under the American Rescue Plan. Today, the Biden administration is launching the biggest anti-poverty program undertaken by the federal government in more than 50 years. Just moments ago, during an event at the White House, Biden said this plan will result in child poverty falling by 50 percent. Let's listen. This would be the largest ever one-year decrease in child poverty in the history of the United States of America, as we begin now. In fact, research from Columbia University in New York found that for each dollar this tax cut cost, it returns $8 in benefits down the line. $8 would have to be spent other ways. It's a gigantic help. It's an eight-to-one return. Your head, your heart, and your budget all lead to the same place. Now, the tax credit increased to $3,600 for kids under six years and to $3,000 to those between six and 17. However, the payments will be sent in two parts. Starting today, those who qualify will receive a monthly payment until December, and the second part of the credit will come once they claim their taxes next year. The monthly payment for children under six is $300 and $250 for those between six and 17. And this time, there is no limit to the amount of kids that will receive the money. Democrats in Congress and the White House want this benefit to be permanent, but according to the Department of the Treasury, it would cost taxpayers $120 billion per year. Now, this credit is diminished for individuals with adjusted gross income of more than $75,000, as well as for couples earning more than $150,000, and this appears altogether for higher earners. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Lorraine. Money that certainly will help a lot of families. Thank you, Edwin, for that report. And following days of unprecedented protests across the island nation, the Cuban government says it is lifting customs restrictions on food, medicine and hygiene products. Wednesday's announcement comes three days after mass protests erupted in a number of cities, driven in part by chronic shortages in stores. The new measure will stay in place for the rest of the year. Cuba's president has called protesters criminals, but he also said the government needs to do more outreach and improve conditions in poor neighborhoods that were rocked by protests. Meanwhile, a Cuban YouTuber says she's home after being arrested Tuesday during a live interview with a Spanish television channel. Dina Fernandez, known as Dina Stars, posted this video message Wednesday assuring her fans she's doing okay and that she wasn't mistreated nor kidnapped. The activist explained she had been taken into custody for promoting the ongoing protests and made a plea to her followers to stop spreading false information about having been tortured. The unrest in Cuba is suddenly posing a growing challenge for President Biden, which could have political ramifications for him in the battleground state of Florida. Joining me now to discuss this is Daniela Ferreira. She's a Cuban-American activist. Thanks for being here, Daniela. Thank you for having me. You came to the U.S. with your family at the age of two on a boat. Can you talk to us about the circumstances under which your family left the island? Absolutely. So like many Cuban families, you know, mine decided to risk everything and throw ourselves into an unforgiving and unpredictable ocean 
suffering, political persecution, uh, economic conditions that were very poor in Cuba, uh, and, and, and oppression, frankly. And we did that coming to the United States in the hopes of one day returning back to Cuba. Um, so it is very exciting to see what's going on on the island currently as people are coming together in a united voice, screaming for Cuba to be free. That is the most important thing, to hear the plea of the voices of the folks in Cuba. And Cuban-Americans have taken to the streets in Miami as well and in other cities. We've seen them all over the U.S. asking for President Biden to take action. Can you talk to us about what they're demanding? Sure. Well, there are certain folks in the Cuban-American community, uh, certainly people that voted for President Trump uh, in 2020, that are asking for military intervention. But the reality is... People like Marco Rubio and other congressional Republicans have said that that is off the table. That is not realistic. Military intervention is not going to happen in Cuba. So what we are asking for is for President Biden to come to Miami and to listen to the people in Cuba who are suffering. We need to continue to put international pressure on the Cuban government, on the Cuban regime to free its people and to step down from power and give it and open it up for a free and democratic Cuba. Speaking of President Donald Trump, President Biden has yet to lift Trump's sanctions on travel and remittances to the island. In your opinion, what should his priorities be? Well, right now we need President Biden to come to Miami. A statement is not enough. And it's not even just about Cuba. Haiti is in crisis too, all of Latin America. And Miami is what opens the doors to this country, to the rest of Latin America. So we need President Biden here to speak to us, to listen to us, and to continue to put pressure on the international community to support the people of Cuba. President Biden lost Florida in the 2020 elections, in large part because former President Trump successfully courted the state's Cuban-American population and his campaign portrayed Democrats as, quote, socialists. What are Biden's political calculations as he confronts the unrest in the island? I don't believe that President Biden is going about this thinking about politics. He really does believe in the freedom and democracy of the Cuban people. So this is not a matter of politics. This is a matter of life or death. And I believe in President Biden, as someone that voted for President Biden in both the primary and general election, I believe that he will listen to our rally to come here to Miami, to listen to the Cuban people and do what's right on behalf of the suffering people in Cuba that are fighting for their rights and fighting for their lives. Well, thank you so much, Daniela Ferreira of the organization Cubano Palante. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News.
U.S. border authorities reportedly arrested or turned away 188,800 migrants from the U.S.-Mexico border in June. That's the highest monthly number in at least a decade and brings the annual total of Customs and Border Protection encounters to more than a million. Overall, U.S. border crossings have been on the upswing since May 2020. The U.S. is now running more than 30,000 radio ads a month in Central America to deter migration as part of a larger mission in the area to target the root causes of such influxes. Meanwhile, in Texas, a state land official who is also a member of the Bush family is taking aim at the federal government for the suspension of the border wall construction. Pedro Rojas explains from McAllen, Texas. Of about a billion three that is unspent. Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush is suing President Biden, the Department of Homeland Security and the Secretary of that agency, Alejandro Mayorkas, for suspending the construction of a section of the border wall in Rio Grande City, Texas, the same area where back in April a 10-year-old Nicaraguan boy, Wilto, was found abandoned. A resident says that many migrants cross in that vicinity. I believe that everyone is worried. When we started seeing an increase in the number of migrants crossing, we thought that maybe this was a temporary. But unfortunately, we have seen the situation continuing, Nina Garcia says. The suit was filed at the federal court in the city of McAllen, Texas. The document states that President Biden and his government is violating the Constitution by canceling border wall contracts with money that Congress allocated for its construction. If you look at the numbers, a Border Patrol Union representative described how the lack of border wall in the area is affecting security operations in the region. It brings morale down. What that means is that uh, by not building the border wall, that means that our Border Patrol agents will be conducting their jobs in higher risk areas. That means that they'll be subject to more attacks by cartel members by drug de dealers, and by these criminal aliens that have very serious criminal records. The goal of this lawsuit is to force the federal government to fulfill the goal of finishing the miles of border wall approved by Congress. And that's why we're bringing this suit, is to not only help secure communities in Texas, but to protect the state of Texas acreage, um, and also to promote good policy and remind federal leadership in Washington, D.C. that they must follow the law. The land where the unfinished wall is located is owned partially by the state of Texas. Commissioner Bush hopes that the court will decide in his favor to complete the structure. In Rio Grande City, Texas, Pedro Rojas, Unis. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.